All right, well, uh, hello and welcome. We are uh, back in the Being Challenge again this week, and today we're looking at habit number two, keystone habit number two, I should say, and that is study scripture. Uh, I'm in my garage today in my workshop, got my workbench here, got a, just a plethora of things on the table here with me as well, and some of that will come into play uh, here in a little bit. But as we go through the being challenge, we're challenging each other to be more like Jesus and working on developing five keystone habits. And a big part of that challenge is not only learning about those habits, but also making them habits and putting them into practice each day. And we form habits in everything we do. Uh, we've talked about that a bit before, but keystone habits are different than just, oh, I guess, an everyday habit. Um, because they flow into other areas of life. They, they are habits that we form that overflow and affect other areas of life and sometimes in even unexpected ways. But they're foundational habits that shape who we are. And some of you might know that uh, I enjoy woodworking, uh, hence kind of why we're in the garage today. But in woodworking, there are some very um, foundational habits that overflow into everything else. And this is just, I'm kind of giving you an illustration of how a keystone habit works. And some of those things are so foundational that I, uh, I personally, I don't even really think about how important they are and how much they matter, but they're very important foundational habits that tend to overflow into many other things. And one of those habits is sharpening, sharpening tools. And there are a lot of different tools that um, need to be sharpened in woodworking. Often a, a very big part of woodworking is removing wood from wood and it takes sharp tools to do that. There's chisels, um, there's, well, there's a couple floating around here. There's chisels, there's uh, card scrapers, there's hand saws, um, there's, yeah, what else is there? Saw blades uh, for, for electric saws as well. Uh, hand planes, I've got, got a hand plane here. Um, that I really enjoy using. But I really like to have sharp tools because they're a pleasure to use and they do a far superior job when they're sharp. And when your tools are sharp, your projects turn out much better and it's much more enjoyable to use them. And in woodworking, sharpening is a very foundational habit that overflows into everything else I do in my woodworking. And it's a habit that needs to be learned and it needs to be formed. It's a skill that has to be developed like other keystone habits. And depending on how much time I spend using a tool, if, you know, if I have a day where I'm able to spend several hours in the shop, I may sharpen tools several times uh, over the course of the time I spend in the shop. And there are many different ways to do that. I heard someone once say, if you throw enough money at a problem, you can pretty much always fix it. But there are, um, gosh, there are water stones, there are oil stones, there are uh, diamond plate stones. I've got a diamond plate stone here that I use quite a bit. Um, there's leather strops, one that a homemade one that I made. Um, there's a honing paste for the leather strop and different grits of all of those things. There's honing guides, like that's a honing guide that's supposed to help you sharpen your tools as well. Um, and even special like water cooled slow grinders that cost a lot of money that uh, you can use to sharpen your tools. And I used to really struggle 
with sharpening. And I thought I needed very expensive and special tools to make this perfectly honed and polished edge on a chisel or a plain blade or whatever it might be. And I think uh, I, I'd probably just seen too many advertisements for very expensive equipment. But there used to be three things that I really did not like about woodworking. Loved everything else and, and I loved them enough to do these other things, but finishing stuff, um, sanding and sharpening. And all of those are very foundational parts of woodworking. Pretty much any project you do is gonna involve those three things in some way. And today there are only two things I don't like about woodworking, finishing and sanding. Often my lovely wife, Christine ends up taking care of some of that. But what turned me around on sharpening was uh, one day someone taught me just a little bit about sharpening and showed me something that just, just clicked with me and it helped me kind of figure it out and helped me form a keystone habit. And this is basically what I learned. Um, when I sharpen a plain blade, I'm making uh, the edge as, as fine as I can so it can cut a clean shaving. I'm going to show you, I'm going to take this plane apart real quick. I'll pull the, the cap off and then the, uh, well, hopefully I'll pull the cap off. Let's see, it's a little bit tight, loosen it up a bit. Of course, there we go. So pull the cap off and then you pull out the, the chip breaker and the blade. And then you separate these two. I've got a special screwdriver for that. You separate the chip breaker and the blade or maybe I do, this one's kind of fat. Of course, I got another screwdriver here. Maybe this one will fit. Um, you separate these two, the, the chip breaker and the blade. And you have to do this so you can sharpen your blade and you pull your blade away from the, the chip breaker, the, the cap iron, depends on which part of the world you're in. But anyway, then you've got your, your plain blade and this is the part you actually have to sharpen. Oh, nice, there's rust on there rust it's like the jehovah witness of woodworking it's always knocking on your door anyway um rust is not good but i can fix that later um but when you sharpen a plane blade this really helped me what this person showed me was that what i'm really doing when i sharpen a plane blade and i'm removing material from the beveled side of the blade so that as the blade sits in the plane and it sits in bevel down which seems like it's upside down, but it's not, is all I'm really doing when I'm sharpening is I'm removing material from this beveled edge of the blade so that as the blade sits in the plane and it slides along the wood, it can cut a nice clean shaving and that beveled edge doesn't get in the way of the wood and that's being cut. And that kind of helped me figure out um, how to sharpen, made me better at it. And I just kind of clicked in my head and I was like, okay, well, I understand kind of what I'm doing now. But to do that, to actually sharpen, there's a lot of different techniques, but every person has to, you know, kind of find what works best for them. And I hold the blade, you know, in about a 30 degree angle and um, I slide it, you know, back and forth along the stone and I rock it back slightly depending on which direction I'm going. Uh, but that takes some time to develop. It's kind of a muscle memory thing and it takes some time and technique to do that. But once you do, once you figure it out, that basic keystone habit um, overflows into everything else you do. It affects how your projects turn out. 
it affects how enjoyable they are to make as well, which is pretty important because you know that's why you do it. It's it's fun to do and enjoyable and just sit down. Um, it's a key sit down habit, and it's imperative that you do it because it does overflow into everything else and it makes a difference in everything else you do and how it turns out. If I can't or if I don't sharpen my tools just because I don't like doing it or I don't know how, the quality and the enjoyability of the work I do will very, very rapidly uh, deteriorate. And that's just a habit for the shop. But there are habits that are keystone habits for all of life that connect with and overflow into everything else we do. And a keystone habit is, is similar to other habits, but the difference is, difference is is that a keystone habit overflows into everything else you do. It affects your life in many different ways. Some of them are even unexpected ways. It's something that, <coughs> excuse me, shapes our life in a bigger way than a normal habit might. And the keystone habits we're looking at are just that. They're habits that overflow into other areas of life. They shape who we are. And those habits that we practice every day are shaping who we are becoming tomorrow. And if we form the right keystone habits, they'll help us in becoming more of who God created us to be. And last week, we talked about the keystone habit of connecting with community, the very small community. You know, we make that effort, we reach out and we connect with other people because who our community is overflows and connects with everything else. Um, we talked about forming community first and we can line everything else up and aim at the right target personally. But if the community around us has a different aim than we do, we're really going to struggle to reach our goals. You know, if you're a university student, for instance, and you want to excel in your studies, but your community wants to excel at partying, well, you're probably not gonna do very well at either one. And today we're gonna to narrow things down a bit. And we went from a small community last week and today we're gonna to narrow things down a little bit to the individual self. Basically, shaping your identity to be in alignment with who you are in Jesus. And that's very important to think about, very important to work on. And we're going to talk a little bit about how our identity and our habits intersect with each other and how they uh, affect each other. And here's a question to engage your mind as we, we start this today. Does, does our identity shape our habits or do our habits shape our identity? Well, and I would say as the answer to a lot of things is, is that most people would agree that it's, it's a both and kind of situation. One feeds the other. And many people really struggle with their identity. We see so much of that in the world today. Um, even an identity as, as foundational as, as gender, um, a lot of people seem to struggle with that. And that's not saying anything against people who do, but sometimes people say, you know, I don't really know who I am, or I'm someone different than what seems to be apparent. And I think part of that comes from the fact that everybody wants to know who they are, and everybody wants to feel special, and everybody wants to feel different. And if someone doesn't feel that way, they might think, well, maybe, maybe this isn't who I really am. Maybe I need to find myself or find out who I really am. And today people want to or feel the need to discover themselves. And that's not a criticism at all. 
But throughout history, the idea of that, of, of finding yourself and discovering your identity for a large part of history is something that's been very, very foreign to people. It's not something that people have thought much about in the past. But today, it seems that many people um, don't have anything that provides them with much in the way of something deep and meaningful in regards to identity. And there are, you know, there's a lot of different online personality assessments that can help us discover things about ourselves. And um, I took one the other day and I found out that I'm, I'm very disagreeable. My wife's been telling me that for years, but of course, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, but if in a room of 100 people, I would be more disagreeable than 98 of them is what this study told me, which I thought was interesting. Um, but those things can be quite helpful in better understanding ourselves as well as others and helping us get along better with other people as well, recognizing things like that. But the reality is, is that if you really want to know who you are in a deep and meaningful way, at some point, you're going to have to come to a place where you contend with God and how he defines who you are. It doesn't matter what your spiritual background is. It doesn't matter if you're Christian background or something else. At some point, if you are serious about your identity, that's something you're going to have to do. You're going to have to contend with God. And that's a biblical concept. You see that in the book of Genesis with Jacob when he wrestles with God, and God gives him the name Israel. He gives him his identity. And I think that's something that is archetypical in a way for all people. If you're going to know who you really are, at some point, you're going to have to contend with God to learn about that and figure that out. And today, the way we do that is we go to the place where we can hear God speak in the Bible. And if you really want to know who you are, you have to go to the Bible. And you have to do that for yourself. That's kind of part of what we're doing through this being challenge is taking responsibility for our spiritual well-being. And I can help you and encourage you and coach you like I'm doing now. But ultimately, you have to go before God on your own. And doing that might be a little scary, but it's not that difficult. Anyone can do it. But at the same time, it's a very profound thing to do so. And the keystone, the habit that helps us do that is studying scripture. That's where God confronts us is in his word. And I don't mean reading it or learning it so I know a lot about it kind of way, or so I get good at Bible trivia kind of way, like studying geometry or something like that. I'm talking about contending with it, wrestling with it in such a way that it builds and shapes and forms my identity. We wrestle with it. We contend with it. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, uh, tells us that, you know, Jesus was a carpenter or some kind of tradesman anyway. And he had to learn how to do that. And we see several times throughout the New Testament that Jesus, even though he's God in the flesh, and this is really hard to reconcile in our head, but he studies scripture and he learns and he grows. You know, and how does Jesus learn if he's already God? It's hard for us to wrap our head around things like that. But Jesus went to the synagogue to learn, to gain wisdom. And he also taught there. But Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus learned and he grew. And 
it was the combination of the things Jesus did and knowing scripture that identified him as God's promised Messiah. When you were in school, were you ever in a class where you thought, I'm never going to use this, this is boring, or this is pointless. And in my case, you know, enjoying woodworking like I do, I wish I would have put a lot more energy into geometry as a kid, because woodworking involves so much of it. But the thought of studying scripture is usually only exciting for people who have already made a connection with it, made a connection with the fact that it is a keystone habit that overflows into everything else and it shows us who we really are that's where we find our identity is contending with scripture in luke 24 jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection and this has been a difficult time for them obviously and they're probably confused about just about everything at this point they were thinking Jesus was coming to set up a, a system of government and that, you know, the, that government was going to favor the Jewish people. But then he was crucified and everything just flew apart, everything they thought about it. But Jesus appears to them and he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So to explain everything that's going on, even who he is, because it wasn't until about now that the disciples really started to get and identify who Jesus is and what his purpose really is. Because, I mean, he told them a lot of things that they didn't really understand until after the resurrection. But to explain that, Jesus points them to Scripture. And all the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, they've been fulfilled in Jesus, identifying him as God's promised Messiah. And even that, if, if that's something different than what the disciples may have initially thought. Uh, and the verse 45 goes on and says, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. And you read that, or at least I read that, and I think, okay, is that something supernatural that Jesus did in their minds, or was it his explanation that opened their minds uh, to understanding Scripture? And I, I think it's both and, and it's not something to get you know, too bogged down in. What I think is important is that some of the very last things Jesus does is to open up and explain Scripture before he returns to heaven. It's active and living and it gives his followers identity in the millennia to come. It gives his, his disciples then identity in, and still does us today. And the Bible goes on to say there in verse 46 and 47, it says, thus it is written. And accordingly, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus has identified himself through scripture as God's promised Messiah. And now he goes on and he says in verses 48 and 49, you are my witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but wait in the city of Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And Jesus, in those passages we've just read, he identifies himself and he also gives his followers identity. He says, this is who I am. Now let me tell you 
who you are. You are my witnesses of these things. That means you've seen this, and now you're going to tell others what you have seen, and you're not going alone. I'm going to be with all of my followers everywhere throughout history and empower you for the mission I have for you. And then when you read on, this, on in the same chapter, you see that the next thing that happens is that Jesus ascends back to heaven and leaves his followers to carry on with what he's left us to do. So the last two things he does is say, this is who I am, and this is who you are. And he uses scripture to explain that. That's pretty profound. And that's what the structure, study of scripture comes down to, discovering who God is and discovering who you are. And if you are reading your Bible to get better at Bible trivia, you're, you're doing it wrong. The more we learn about who God is, the more we learn about who we are. And if you want to learn about who you are, contend with God and learn about who he is. And we find identity in what we worship. And if we understand God's identity, we'll worship him. Now, we've talked about idol worship in the past a fair bit. And idol worship steals away our identity. It takes it. Many people struggle with identity because of idol worship. We don't consciously seek, if we don't consciously seek our identity in God, we will allow it to be formed somewhere else. And it will be lacking what only God can give. But wherever you are or not finding your identity, it's going to shape who you are. It's shaping who you are. Wherever you're drawing your identity is shaping who you are. You know, if we, we change jobs, we, our financial situation changes, we go through all these changes in life. Uh, we, we move where we live changes. And if we find our identity in those things, when they change or are lost, so is our identity. You find true identity if you, if you seek your identity in those things, neither, you know, you, you're not going to find your identity in those things, but you're not, you're not going to find it by looking deep inside yourself either. You ever, you've probably heard something like that. Well, look deep inside yourself, you know, and we kind of have a tendency to do that. We try to determine who we are and what our life is by looking at ourselves, by looking inside of ourselves. And you'll never discover who you are by doing that. Um, it's, it's kind of silly. I'm going to try to explain why that doesn't work. Um, I've got this thing here. And, you know, if, if I hand you this, and it actually it comes apart, um, not that it's supposed to, but it kind of does. Um, if I hand you this, assuming that you don't already know what it is, if you, if you do know, don't tell, uh, you probably aren't going to figure out what it is just by how it, or, or you're going to figure out what it is or how it works just by looking at it intently, like almost like looking inside yourself intently. You're not going to figure out what that thing is just by looking at it intently. And this thing can't tell you what it is either, but the her person who made this could tell you what it is. And of course I could tell you what it is, but that's because, you know, someone told someone who told someone who told me what it is. But God has created you and to figure out who you are you're going to have to go to the one that made you just like with this, you know, the knowledge of what this is has come from the person who created it, but it's the creator of the thing who determines what it is. And if your creator has determined who you are, 
you're not going to figure out who you are by looking at yourself. And apart from learning from the creator of a thing, you're really, really never going to know what, what it is. You know, I could, I could maybe try to use this as a hammer, um, but it wouldn't work very well. Um, I could use it as a, as a paperweight and it would, it would work pretty well for that because it's kind of hefty, it's brass. Um, and it'd work, it'd make a great paperweight. It would do well at that, but that's not what it was made for. And it'd be missing out on so much potential if that's all it was used for. You ever feel like that? And I'm, you know, who doesn't at some point, but just so you know, this is called a wheel marking gauge and you use it to mark distance when you're, you know, marking out uh, wood for dovetails and tenons and things like that. Um, just so I don't leave you hanging on what that is. It's a wheel marking gauge. But you were created by God and that's where the answers are. And that's where your identity is found. And Blaise Pascal, you've probably heard of, 17th century mathematician, philosopher. He was also a theologian. Um, I don't know if, if that's a well-known fact or not, but he said that not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. We only know life and death through Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know the meaning of life. The meaning of our death, the meaning of God, or the meaning of ourselves. It is only in Christ. So not only did he make you, but he went a step further to show you just how valuable you are to him. He paid the price to redeem you back to himself. And when you ask someone the question, what do you want in life? Um, some people may tell you what they want to do. Oh, I want to travel. I want to see the world. Uh, they may talk about what they want to have. Oh, I want to own a home or whatever. But it's unusual if you ask someone, you know, what do you want in life? It's unusual for someone to talk about what they want to become. And that's really what needs to come first. What do I want to become? Because your identity shapes your habits, which shape everything else you do. But this is an area where we can make a big mistake of relying too heavily on habits and the things we do. And although those habits, the keystone habits, they're very important, we find our identity in Jesus, not in what we do not even in the habits we form. Jesus models good habits for us. He's an example to live by. That's, you know, that's where we're looking to form these habits. But if Jesus is only your example, you'll be overwhelmed and lost because he's perfect and we're not. We would never live up to that standard. We can't live up to what Jesus has done and we can't live up to God's standard because it's, it's a perfect standard. Identity comes through faith. Romans 10, 17 tells us how that happens. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, by studying scripture, hearing the gospel of Jesus, how he died for our sin. And that faith shapes our habits and gives us our identity. And when you have that, when you find your identity in Jesus, Nothing can change that. Doesn't matter if your financial situation changes. Doesn't matter if your career changes. It doesn't matter if where you live changes because Jesus doesn't change. And when you have that identity, not only does it not change, it's eternal. 
And nothing can take that away from you. And we're going to close with this verse. Wrap things up for the day. I hope that's been helpful for you. I hope you've been sticking with your book. I hope you're beginning to form these keystone habits and they are a blessing for you. We're going to close with uh, Romans chapter eight, and I'm going to read verses 38 and 39. This is what it says. It says, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer, and we are just grateful for your love for us, for your mercy, and I pray that you would just walk with us as we seek to form habits that are going to help us grow in our relationship with you, but also at the same time recognizing that it's not what we do that makes us right with you. It's Jesus who does that when we trust him, placing our faith in him. We're so thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so grateful that you have again taken the time to be part of this this week, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a great week.